Welcome back to Sunday School. Good to see you. We're looking at another kind of transition today. We are coming to the end of our time in the Torah. We've been in the first five books of the Bible for a while, but we're actually moving on to the book of Joshua today, and we are going to be in the book of Joshua for the rest of our lesson unit, so about the next six lessons or so. This means that we start talking today about Israel's conquest of Canaan proper. Last time we heard about how God prepared the way for Israel's conquest. We saw how God brought the people to the eastern side of the Jordan River. He caused the people under Moses to vanquish two powerful Amorite kingdoms, and he even turned one prophet's attempt to curse Israel into a time of prophetic blessing on Israel. So before the conquest has even begun, the, the conquest proper, God has made clear that his purposes for Israel, his purposes involving Israel, will not be stopped. They will come to pass. But will God still show favor to Israel when there's a change in leadership? Because at this point, because of Moses' sin at Meribah, God has forbidden Moses from entering the promised land. He's instead called Moses' helper, Joshua, to lead Israel into the land and begin the conquest. So would God still be with Israel under Joshua? God had a special relationship with Moses. Moses interceded for the lives of the people multiple times. Would God still show favor with Joshua? We're going to see the answer to that question over the next few lessons, but we begin to see it today because God is, in the text that we look at, going to continue to prepare the way for Israel in an extremely surprising fashion. God has a special agent that will act on Israel's behalf. And who is this special agent? It is a Canaanite, a woman, a prostitute, and a liar. And yet not only would God use this woman, Rahab, in a critical way for Israel, but she would also become an example of God's grace and the life-changing effect of faith for all people of all time. So let's learn today about Rahab and how she helps the spies of Israel. And let's pray before we go on. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. It is a very hope-giving account. Lord, I pray that you help me to be able to explain it well. Help us to appreciate the impact of just what a great God you are and how you demonstrate that with Rahab and the spies. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please take your Bibles and open to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, and that will be page 224 if you're using the Pew Bible. Joshua chapter 2. Let me give you a little bit more reminders on the specific context of this account. At this point, Moses, that great prophet and deliverer of God, has died after giving a final exposition of God's law to the second generation of Israel on the plains of Moab. The plains of Moab that would be on the eastern side of the Jordan, opposite the fords that actually are on the way to Jericho. Now, this exposition, this last sermon of Moses is written down for us in the book of Deuteronomy. After that sermon, God led Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo, where God granted Moses a supernaturally assisted look of all the land that God was finally about to give to Israel. And then Moses died and was buried by God in an unknown location, buried by God himself. But now Joshua leads Israel. And in Joshua chapter 1, God commissions and encourages Joshua to lead Israel into Canaan. And he specifically charges Joshua to know and pay close attention to all the law of God as given by Moses. People of Israel proclaim their support, their loyalty to Joshua, and they urge him, just as God urged him, to be strong and courageous. This leads us to the beginning of chapter 2, where we look into the account. And we're going to start just by reading the first seven verses of chapter 2, Joshua 2, verses 1 to 7. So follow along with me as I read. Word of God says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, Men from the sons of Israel have came here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. 
it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out i do not know where the men went pursue them quickly or you will overtake them but she had brought them up to the roof had hidden them in the stalks of the flax stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof so the men pursued them on the road to the jordan to the fords and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out they shut the gate all right let's pause here in our understanding of the account so we can just make some basic observations before crossing the Jordan River and actually entering Canaan, Joshua sends out two spies. And notice their mission given to us in verse 1. They are to view the land, especially Jericho. They find a place to stay in Jericho, the house of a harlot or prostitute named Rahab. In verse 2, however, word reaches the king that these two Israelite spies are at Rahab's house. And so in verse 3, he orders Rahab to deliver the men over. But how does Rahab respond? She tells the tale. She admits the men came to her. She asserts she did not know they were Israelites. She says the men left through the city gate at dark, and she does not know where they went, but she encourages the king to pursue them. Meanwhile, according to verse 6, Rahab has actually brought the spies to her roof and hidden them in stalks of flax. Back then, flax would have been used for linen clothing. It would be first soaked in water and then dried in the sun, so she probably hid the spies underneath these stalks of drying flax so she says one thing to the king but she really knows where the spies are which means her story to the king is really a what it's a lie maybe partly true but it's a lie but as a result of this tall tale notice the king's directions or the king's spies i'm sorry the king's men they pursue the spies by going east east from jericho toward the jordan along the road to the main crossing point the fords of the Jordan River. And who would be on the other side of the Jordan at this crossing point? The people of Israel. That makes sense that the king would pursue the spies in this direction. Now with these basic observations, let's ask some interpretation questions. You might find it odd that the Israelites, these two spies, they take lodging in a harlot's house. But surely they did not do so for an impure purpose. Why lodge with a prostitute? What do you think? Right, this is a place where they can hopefully catch as little attention as possible. A house of ill repute or a house where people who are just coming and going can go. Uh, it would be a place, it'd be a perfect place for spies to hide. And so they figured. All right, let's stay here. It's also possible that since, as we learn later on, her house was on the edge of the city, actually in the city wall, that it would serve as a convenient place of escape if they really needed to get away. So it was a very strategic choice to stay at Rahab's house. Nevertheless, God made it so that the spies were discovered. Rahab lies about the Israelites being in her house, but her lie was very significant. Everyone knew that these spies would be in the city for one main reason. What would be coming later if the spies were already there? The armies of Israel to invade the land, to conquer Jericho. So the situation was very dire for the king and the people of Jericho. To protect the city from the Israelites, it was vital that any Israelite spies be discovered, apprehended, and probably executed. This would all be in the name of saving the city. But Rahab protects the spies. So by protecting the spies, what had Rahab decided about her sin? Right. Yeah, go ahead. Were you going to say more? Yeah, she knew that the city would be attacked, and I think you're even right to say she knew that it would be conquered. She's throwing her lot in with the Israelites. In fact, we could even say she's really turning her back on the city. This is not her merely hedging her bets. You see, Rahab was not really just lying here. She was committing treason. She's separating herself from 
her Gentile people, her Canaanite people. She's distancing herself from their way of life, and she's decided to stand with the Hebrews. Does this remind you of anyone else that we've seen in the Torah? Well, the midwives to a certain extent, but also Moses. Here's a man who was raised among the Gentiles. He knew all their education and their culture. But what does Hebrews say about Moses? He considered the treasures of Christ, or he considered Christ and the rewards of Christ greater than all the treasures of Egypt. And decided to stand with his brethren who were slaves rather than continue in Pharaoh's household. We see Rahab going through a similar process here. She decides to turn her back on her people and stand with Israel. And in doing so, she saves the lives of the spies who come to her. But as part of this process, Rahab tells a lie. Was her lie wrong? Was it righteous? Was it excusable? Now, we've talked about the issue of lying and righteous lies when we talked about the Hebrew midwives back in Exodus. It's worth bringing up the issue again here, though, because how central Rahab's lie is in bringing about the situation we see in our text. Was her lie righteous? Now, the rest of the scripture is going to have a lot of interesting remarks when it comes to Rahab and her actions here. And I want to just briefly take you through the majority of those. So take your Bibles first and take a look at Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 and 25. So still in the same book, just a few pages over. This is later on when Jericho is actually conquered. Joshua 6, 17, and notice what comment is made about Rahab there. It says, The city shall be under the ban, that is, devoted to destruction. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord, or Yahweh. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. I'll go down to verse 25. Verse 25 says, However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And this is what we learn here about Rahab from Joshua 6. She, her family, and her possessions, they are all spared in Jericho's destruction, and she even continues to live in Israel afterward. But notice the specific reason why she is spared. It says, because she hid the spies. Now let's look at the New Testament. Jump all the way over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, verse 5, where we see Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. The royal genealogy, likely the line of Joseph here. And notice what we hear in verse 5 regarding Rahab. Matthew 1, 5, it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. How very interesting. What does Matthew report to us about Rahab? She becomes part of the line of Israel's kings, which culminates in the Messiah. This means that Rahab, sometime after the events of reported in Joshua, she apparently married a Jew named Salmon and became the mother of Boaz, also later the mother-in-law of Ruth. Now, what kind of man was Boaz? He was a righteous man, a generous man, and also notably kind to foreigners. Coincidence? Let's look at Hebrews now. Book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verse 31. We see another comment about Rahab. Hebrews 11:31 says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. The writer of Hebrew tells us specifically, Rahab is an example of faith, even saving faith in the actions that she did on behalf of the spies. What specifically did she do, according to the author of Hebrews? She welcomed the spies in peace. That's how she proved her faith. James says something similar about Rahab. Turn over to the book of James, chapter 2. James 2.25 
James 2.25. Remember, the author, James, is making the point in his book, especially in the beginning, that true faith always produces works. And he points to Rahab as an example. Here's what he says, James 2.25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by her by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So James 2 points to Rahab as an example of faith, the true kind of faith that produces good deeds. And what's the specific work or good deeds which James points? She received Israel's messengers and sent them out another way so that they would not be caught. Now, do you notice from all these verses that we just looked at, which part of Rahab's actions is left out in every biblical writer's praise of her? Her lying. It's not mentioned at all. It's not commended, not mentioned. Other things she did are commended, but not her lying. This is very notable. And on a, on a slightly different tack, is the Bible very clear about whether lying is a sin? It's quite clear. And I'll just bring you through a quick survey of verses. You don't need to turn to these because I'll be a little bit quicker with them. Uh, you have them listed there on your screen. Exodus 20:16, Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is basic to the law of God. Proverbs 12:22, Lying lips are an abomination to Yahweh, and those, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. So God strongly condemns the habit of lying. Revelation 21:8 says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation says that lying is the characteristic of those who will burn forever under God's holy wrath in the lake of fire. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So as Christians, part of... Living the worthy life, the worthy walk because of our salvation means having a righteous mouth, putting off the old sinful way of actions, including lying. Titus 1.2, Titus 1.2, give you a little fragment here, but it has an important phrase in the middle. It says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. So Paul is talking about God's promises in this passage, and he says, He's reminding Titus that lying is impossible for God. God's nature requires him to speak the truth and only the truth all the time. This is to give us confidence in the word of God. And then 1 John 2.21, 1 John 2.21 says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. So no lie comes from or has anything to do with the truth. Now, just this brief survey of verses, and there are many more in the scriptures that talk about lying or telling the truth. Do any of these verses list exceptions for innocent, permitted, or even righteous lies? They don't. Rather, all lies are grouped in the same category in these verses. And they're all condemned. But this shouldn't be too surprising because of the truth captured in Titus 1-2. And that is God cannot lie. And this is what we've focused on in our previous discussion about lying. As God is the basis of all righteousness, if it is true that God cannot lie, then lying can never be good. Because anything that is good, anything that is loving, anything that is righteous or just must already be in God because God is God. If there's something that we can do that's good that God cannot do, then there's some flaw something lacking in God, which would contradict God's very nature. If lying were ever good, ever right, God would be able to do it, or some goodness would be lacking in God. But because God cannot lie, this shows us that lying is never good. Lying is never right. It is never loving. It is never what a Christian is to do. Now, it's true that God sometimes withholds information, doesn't always say everything that he knows, Sometimes he allows people to believe what is false, but he never lies. So the scriptures are clear. Lying in any situation is sinful. But bringing this back to Rahab, we can be confident that in lying, Rahab sinned. But someone may say, well, if Rahab sinned, then why did things turn out so well for Rahab? Well, we're going to see this a little bit more later on. If she was dishonoring God, why did God bless her? 
What's the answer? Well, God chose a blesser for other reasons. God decided not to bring punishment or chastening to her for her lie. God was being merciful to Rahab. I mean, there are other times in the scripture where God still blesses people who sin. Sometimes righteous people who are not demonstrating full faith, maybe by lying, yeah, God still blesses them. Or other times, God chooses to show undeserved mercy to the wicked who live their whole lives in opposition to God. He still allows them to experience good. On the other hand, there are people who walk faithfully with the Lord in the scriptures, and they suffer for it. Some of them are even killed for it. Is that a sign of God's disfavor? No. Ultimately, we can't look to how a situation turns out to know what God thinks is right or praiseworthy. We have to look at what God actually said, what he commanded, what was his own example, what is his own nature. And for those things, we see that lying is sinful, regardless of the consequences. But another might ask, well, if Rahab sinned, if she lied, how can she be held up as an example of faith in the rest of the scriptures? I mean, isn't a lie kind of tainting her whole uh, example of, of being a faith-filled person? Well, it's true that righteous acts, if you're doing a particular righteous act or thinking a righteous thought, and sin enters into it, it does become tainted. And that's why, apart from Christ, there is truly nothing good that we can do. Even the, the really nice things or what seem like righteous things on the outside, if they're tainted by a selfish motive or by some sinful component, then they are not honoring to God. And everything that we do is like that, apart from Christ. Nevertheless, it's also true, according to the scriptures, that a person can do something righteous while at the same time doing something unrighteous or very shortly after doing something unrighteous. And we can see this in a number of places in the scriptures. I'll just give you a few examples. Think about the woman who had the bleeding issue in the New Testament. I remember this woman, she had this bleeding issue for, for years, but she has faith in Jesus and in Jesus's healing power that she can be healed if she comes to Jesus. Now, that is a righteous belief, and she's commended even by Jesus for seeking him out for healing. At Matthew 9, 22, Jesus says to this woman, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once, the woman was made well. Wow, what an example of righteous faith. But the woman's specific method for obtaining this healing was actually sinful and unloving. How so? Well, in the account surrounding that statement I just read, we see that she, an unclean woman, went into the midst of a people, risking making them unclean, and she deliberately touched another person, which would have made him unclean too. Now, she said, I only want to touch the fringe of his garment, but hey, you touch his garment, he's wearing the garment, he's going to become unclean. And in the Old Testament, you're instructed, if you're unclean, you stay away from people, and you do not make them unclean. That is very unloving to make them ceremonially unclean. And who are we talking about here? We're talking about Jesus, this great teacher, this miracle worker. And more than that, he is the perfect lamb of God. She's going to defile. She's going to make ceremonially unclean the lamb of God just so that she can be healed. That's not very loving. Of course, Jesus is holiness. His power is such that no unclean touch could defile him. Anything unclean touches Jesus, it becomes clean. But nevertheless, you see, with this woman, even though she was demonstrating true faith and even righteousness by coming to Jesus to be healed, her method of carrying this out obtained or was including a sinful component. Or to point to another example that we've already seen, think about Moses back in the book of Exodus. New Testament commends his faith, even when he's part of Pharaoh's household, by going to check out his brethren and identifying with them and even defending an oppressed Israelite, taking vengeance. This was righteous. He was saying, I'm not going to stand with Egypt anymore. I'm going to stand with Israel, and I'm going to stand up for my brethren. But how did what Moses, in his faith, and what he was demonstrating, how did that include a plainly sinful part? He committed murder. He murdered an Egyptian. He had no reason to murder this Egyptian other than he wanted to obtain vengeance, but that was not his right in that situation. Didn't appear to be necessary. 
So Moses, even though he was demonstrating righteous faith, he was also sinning in the way that he sought to carry out that righteous impulse. So we see something similar with Rahab. We observe that she is righteous and she welcomes the spies. She stands with Israel. She fears the God of Israel. She makes sure that the, the spies' lives or lives are protected. But her protection, her faith, it, it contained a sinful choice along with it, and that was to tell this lie. Now, someone may say, well, it, what else was she going to do? If she didn't lie, how else, how else, how on earth was she and the spies going to get out of that jam? I mean, she saved their lives. There's no other way she could have gotten out of that. Well, is that really true? If we ask, well, what else could she have done? That's not really a fair question because we don't know. There's no way to know what else she could have done or what else God could have done to accomplish deliverance here. Maybe there was another way to protect and conceal these spies that didn't involve telling a lie. Maybe she could have been more strategic with what she shared with the king's men, tell the truth, but withhold information that wouldn't have resulted in the spies being discovered. Or maybe God could have done something miraculous. Or maybe maybe she would have told the truth or just refused to say anything and they find the spies, they're all taken prisoner and they're later rescued. Or maybe they all were killed as holy martyrs and believers in Yahweh. And we certainly know that honoring God is more important than life itself and it's rewarded with eternal life. So any number of things might have happened. But God allowed these events to happen just as they did, just as he desired, because it was part of a larger purpose. God did not force Rahab to sin. It was all part of what he ordained. He actually sovereignly arranged that the spies would be delivered by a faith-filled, yet failing, prostitute. He determined that this way would be the way that would give him the most glory. So in one sense, it couldn't have happened any other way. And of course, it's worth mentioning that it's quite amazing that Rahab did anything righteous at all, considering the amount of revelation she had about God, considering what kind of person she was and her background. That she even chose to welcome the spies is amazing. And God himself had performed this work inside of her. Yes, it's true she shouldn't have lied, but wow, considering her situation, I can't believe we should be amazed that she did what she did. Now, on this question of necessity of lying, just one other thought about it. You know that the vast majority of lies in our day are excused. Any lies that is tried to be have an excuse is excused as being necessary. Oh, I had to tell this lie. It was for a good purpose. I had to do it. But as believers, we know from the scriptures that nothing is necessary except God and following God's way. If we can escape danger in a situation that we face righteously, without sinning, we do so. It's not necessary that we actually just go out there and ask for suffering. Walk into the middle of a dangerous situation and say, do, do everything you want to me. And Jesus even tells the disciples that they persecute you and once that he flee to another. You've got more work to do. You don't have to sit there if you've got more opportunity for ministry. So if there's a way we can righteously escape danger, we can do so. And we can even get strategic and creative about how we do so. You remember, and I brought this up before, the book of Acts, when Paul's put on trial by the Jews, they, they don't like that he's preaching the gospel of Jesus. They're accusing him of untrue things. And Paul realizes he's not going to get a fair trial with the Jews. And so what does he cry out? He says, brethren, I'm being put on trial today for my hope in the resurrection which was true, but it was also a very strategic thing to say because the people who were trying him disagreed on whether the resurrection really was going to happen. One group of people who were trying to kill him turned against another group of people and they say, hey, we stand with Paul. So that was a creative way to get out of that situation, but it didn't involve any wrongdoing. So again, we can do that too. But in the end, if danger or punishment cannot be escaped without sin, then we accept it. We accept that danger or that punishment, merely trusting God to provide and deliver. 
because he will do so in this life and or in the next. You know, it just comes to my mind right now. Who's a great example of this? The three friends of Daniel. They knew that if they just bowed down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to do so, they could have saved their lives. And in, in a way, they could have come up with all sorts of rationalizations. They could say, even though I'm bowing down, I'm not really worshiping. You know, it just kind of looks like I'm worshiping, but I'm not. But they didn't even go that route. They knew that would be a compromise. They said, look, Nebuchadnezzar, we know that our God is able to deliver us even from you and your threats. But if he doesn't, just know that we're not going to bow down to your gods. It should be the same for us. Let us never be what some Christians were accused of being in Romans 3.8. The word that's, that some people were saying, that Christians were saying, was that let us sin, let us do evil, that good may come. I think a lot of people are tempted to believe this when it comes to lying. Hey, there's a good outcome for this lie, so it's permissible. When is that ever true in the Christian life? Let us not sin that good may come. Let us do good. Trust God with the result. Now, you may still have more practical questions when it comes to lying and telling the truth. But I do believe the scriptures are clear and that God's character is clear, that there's no such thing as a righteous lie. Of course, there are times when we say things that are technically not true, but are not really lying. Like when we tell jokes or use sarcasm or act on stage, use figures of speech, use certain kinds of paraphrases, etc. But in those instances, we have indicated to our audience in one way or another that we are speaking in a special mode. So I would not consider that lying. But outside of those instances, if we write or say something untrue, we lie and we become unlike God and we dishonor God through our words, because we testify that his quality of total truthfulness is not glorious. It's even a flaw in God. So, my dear brothers and sisters, let us speak the truth whenever we speak. Let's not even lie to make some surprise birthday party for somebody. No lies of the truth, the scripture says. We won't always worship God with our words. But, Coming back to Rahab. Rahab's lie was not righteous, but her hiding the spies was. And actually, this was incredibly courageous and a faith-filled act. But why did she do it? What was motivating her to treat Israel's spies this way? Well, we're going to find out as we read the rest of our passage. Look at Joshua chapter 2. Back to Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 8 to 24. Joshua 2, starting in verse 8. Follow along with me as I read. The word continues to say, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. But we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up, when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and had no courage, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven, above, and on earth. Now, therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when Yahweh gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you. And hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless, when we come into the land, you tie the cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. 
But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, According to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country, and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned, came down from the hill country, and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Surely Yahweh has given us all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. Let's observe this latter section. Notice what it is that Rahab has heard about the Israelites and their God, according to verse 10. He's heard about the great Red Sea deliverance and the conquest of Israel against Sihon and Og. What had this news done to her and her people? She says it filled them with terror. They lost all their courage. And notice also, according to verse 9, what Rahab concluded, what would happen to Canaan. She said, God has given this land to you, to Israel. I know that. And notice what else she proclaims about God in verse 11. She says, Yahweh is God of heaven and earth. Now, let's not forget who's saying these things. Canaanite prostitutes. Canaanites were a wicked people. They were devoted to destruction, according to the Torah. They were to be devoted to destruction. And yet she, one of them, a notorious sinner among them, she's saying all these true things about God. And then, in the verses that follow these amazing declarations, Rahab requests that the Israelites swear to her that when they conquer Jericho, that they spare her and her relatives. And the Israelites agree on certain conditions. And we see those conditions in our passage. Rahab is not to tell anyone about their business. She and her family are to stay inside the house during the attack on Jericho. And she is to tie a scarlet cord in her window. This cord is apparently a different item than the rope that she used to Help the men climb down, different word in Hebrew. Also, she ties it after they're let down, so it wouldn't have, wouldn't have been tied already. But this was going to be the sign, the mark, the people of Israel, don't mess with that house. Rahab also gives the spies advice how to return safely to their camp in verse 16. She tells them to go into the hill country and stay there three days. Now, to appreciate the significance of this, remember, Jericho is part of the Valley of the Jordan, the bottom of the valley is the Jordan River, and it's to the east of Jericho. And this is where the king's men went to go look for the spies. So the edge of the valley, well, where would it be? The hills, the, the higher elevations, it would be on the west, on the other side of Jericho. So she's actually telling the spies, go the opposite direction that anybody would think you would go. Go to the west, go to the hills, you can hide in the hills, and then return later. So the spies follow her advice. They escape the city by climbing down the window, climbing down the rope from Rahab's window, because her house was in the city wall, and they do as she instructs, and they come back to the camp of Israel. And then, once they return, they tell Joshua what happened, and notice their conclusion in verse 24. They say, Yahweh surely has given us this land, for all our enemies are melting with fear. Having made these observations, let's talk interpretation once again. Two main questions really having to do with the whole passage. Think about the results of the spying mission. Why did God have the two spies go through all that they did? Lodging with Rahab, nearly being discovered, and then later returning to Joshua with their report. What do you think? Hmm. Right. So a huge part of why this had to happen was so that we could see the God-glorifying faith of Rahab. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But I saw another hand. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Hmm. 
Hmm. Yeah, interesting parallels there. Uh, just to recap what you said briefly, Rahab stands out as the first or one of the first Gentiles to embrace Yahweh. You say embrace Christ. Obviously, she didn't know she didn't know that name at that time. But in a sense, that's true because anybody who's saved is saved by Christ. And she was looking to God's provision, even though she didn't know the specifics of that yet. Yes, she is one of the first. And actually, this is consistent with God's entire purpose for Israel. God says in the Torah, you are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, wait, I thought the priests were the Levites. How can they be a kingdom of priests? Well, they were going to function as priests for all the nations of the world. They're going to be interceding for them and even drawing all the nations to Yahweh by being a holy people, by having justice in their land, and by having God do such mighty works in their behalf, they were going to be, they were designed to be drawing the Gentile nations to Yahweh. Now, of course, we're going to read through the rest of the Old Testament that that's a mission that they largely failed to accomplish. They will accomplish it one day when God causes Israel to repent and establishes his kingdom in Israel. Nevertheless, we see that purpose already beginning in a very strange way with Rahab, because this is the moment of conquest. Destroy the Gentiles. They're evil, wicked. Get them out of the land. And God says, I don't want you to miss the fact that I'm actually intent to draw Gentiles to myself. And Rahab is certainly one example of that. He also noted the parallel between the scarlet cord and the Passover. Certainly a similar idea. It's kind of like there's a sign. This house is redeemed. This house, this house is under the protection of Yahweh. And ultimately, that does have a connection to Christ. So, yes, very interesting. So it is important. The spies needed to meet Rahab, go through what they did, because God was going to glorify himself in revealing Rahab's faith, in showing his protection for a Canaanite Gentile prostitute. He was going to show that he is able to deliver not just Rahab, but also the spies. Because let's face it, the spies also needed help. Uh, we're about to die if we're, if we're caught. God says, look, I know how to protect you. And I'm going to do it this way. And also, certainly, this would have been immensely encouraging to Israel. Not only seeing the faith of this woman, but also her report that everyone in the land, even in Jericho, this strongly fortified city, they are terrified of Israel. Not because the Israelites are so great, but because of Israel's God. And that's why the spies say what they do in verse 24. Surely God has given us the land. Because look, look at the way the people are quaking in their boots. Let's believe the Lord. Let's obey Yahweh. Let's go obtain the land. All of this wouldn't have happened unless they had run into Rahab and experienced what they did. They needed to hear her report. They needed to see her faith. They needed to experience her protection. Now, along those lines, let me ask another question. Because Rahab's actions were not only helpful at that time, they're recorded meticulously in the scripture for all future generations to behold. So how was Rahab's example not only meant to encourage Israel, but even us today toward obedience? I've already partly answered this question. We see in Rahab how God is able to provide for anyone who trusts in him. Despite their history of sin, despite their social station, despite their ethnic background, God says, you look to me, I will vindicate your faith. The rest of the scriptures will certainly be clear, especially in the New Testament. Just how powerful God is to forgive, cleanse, and transform sinners. No one is beyond the grace of God. I mean, you can't get that more clearly than with Rahab. I mean, she is the most notorious of sinners. She is one of the most notorious sinners at that time in Israel's eyes. And God says, look, look at what I'm able to do even for her when she looks to me in faith. It's also amazing when you think about it. It's not like Rahab was saved and then just went on to live uh, an immoral life. No, because of what we see with Boaz, 
Rahab must have grown in faith. She must have become a wise and righteous woman in Israel because she rears up a faithful son. And God was even pleased to have her be in the line of Messiah. This is God's powerful grace. This is God's saving and transforming grace, which is not just available to Rahab, but to any of us today. No matter where you come from, no matter what your situation is right now, if you look to Jesus, if you believe in him, if you repent of your sin, just the same way that Rahab did, she says, I'm not living that old life anymore. I'm not going to continue to behave the way that the people around me behave. I'm following Yahweh. If we do the same thing in our lives and say, I'm letting go of my old life, I'm going to trust in Christ instead, what will God do? Rahab is proof. God says, I will vindicate that faith. This is a testimony, a powerful testimony that we see in the life of Rahab. And we also see, along with this, the incredible power of God just in general, because he's not only able to save but he's able to subdue all enemies, all his enemies, all his people's enemies in terror and even cause them to turn to God when God so chooses. You know, one of the themes that we were talking about last time, last time is that God is the unstoppable God. It makes no sense to rebel against God, to oppose his purposes, because you're not going to win. That's the sentiment behind the phrase in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Stop rebelling. Stop conspiring. You're not going to win against me. Or Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? They say, let's take off the yoke of Yahweh and take off the yoke of Yahweh's king. But what does Yahweh do? He says, he in the heaven, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And he says, as for me, I've installed my king on Mount Zion. I don't know what you guys are doing, but I've installed my king on Mount Zion. It's going to happen. Look at even here with Rahab, how that truth is illustrated. All the people of the land are cowering in fear. God says, I'm able to make them do that. And more than that, God says, look, I'll even turn this notorious sinner towards me. That's my power. And so when we think about maybe notorious sinners today or enemies of God, we do not need to fear them, just as Israel did not need to fear its enemies. Because who, who is in control of all? Who reigns? Yahweh does. Our God does. And he says, look, I'm able to subdue them in a moment. I can destroy them. I can cause them to run away in fear, or I can even draw them to myself. Now, of course, everyone is responsible for his own actions. No one will turn to God unless God is gracious to them, though, because of their evil hearts. And God says, I'm able to do that. So don't fear. Maybe you have somebody who's persecuting you. Maybe you have somebody who's threatened you. Maybe you have somebody who's just such a notorious sinner. You say, that person could never come to God. It's so rebellious. This account shows us, don't forget the power of God. He's the unstoppable God. He can make anyone turn to him if he so chooses. God revealing himself in such a way as he did to Rahab. And so that person says, oh, I want to follow him. I, I want to I be with Yahweh. I see his beauty. I see his glory. I see his power. I don't want to go any other way. Our God is such a God. He is so great in his power, and he's also so great in his grace. Rahab is a testimony to that to all generations. So we need to heed that testimony. Already we're thinking a little bit about application, and so I do think that is the main application that I want you to take home from this text. No one is too unclean for Jesus. No one is beyond God's grace or power, God is glorified in saving, transforming, and providing for such people as Rahab. He didn't just provide for her. He also provided for the spies. He provided for Israel as they were coming into the land to obtain the land. And he'll also provide for us. Now, there are a few other application questions I want to bring to your attention. I took these from the workbook from Answers in Genesis. If you're using that, you'll see the same questions there. Along the same lines of what we've been looking at today. So more questions to help you consider the implications of what we talked about. Number one, what do we learn about God through this account where a lying prostitute was adopted in God's chosen nation and became, became an ancestor of the Messiah? 
We've already seen the grace of God certainly put on display, the power of God put on display. But what else? Yes, I see another hand. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the saving nature of God, the the openness of His salvation. Uh, he is a God, even though there's only one way to be saved, and that is through Christ. And nevertheless, it is offered to all, anyone, anyone who turns. They they have the possibility of salvation. They will be saved if they turn. God guarantees. So yeah, no matter no matter where you come from. What else do we see? Yes, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so more emphasized here, the sovereignty of God and uh, the power of faith and how it, how it translates into righteous action. Yes, both of those things are true. And that's, that's all God's work. God's the one who's doing that. So another thing we see here is how God, one the kind of like um, characteristic way that God loves to exalt himself. And that is by raising up the humble. As I said, you can't get much more, can't get much lower than Rahab. God says, here is one that I will exalt. She has faith in me, and now I will raise her up. Not only by saving her, protecting her in the time of Israel's invasion, but again, honor from all time, being included in the scripture, being put into the line of the Messiah. That's the way God exalts the humble who turn to him. This is the truth from scripture. <clears throat> God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And what's the opposite that we see here? Jericho? This proud city, this strong city, this city that had trusted in itself in its own way, what's going to happen to them? They're going to, they're going to be laid low. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be annihilated by God. This is the truth that we need to remember. He is this kind of God. He loves to glorify himself by taking the low and exalting them. But he loves to take those who will not glorify God, those who exalt themselves, and he says, I'll bring you low because I'm jealous for my own glory. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we could see other things, but hopefully we can at least see those from this passage. Now, here's another question. How does an account like this one, where a person's sin is put on display, both her lying and her also her, her past, how does it demonstrate the authenticity of the Bible? So uh, just thinking theologically, salvifically, yes, we see that no one is beyond God's grace. And we see that even in our own lives on the cross, our sins were accounted and paid for by Christ. But just thinking about the authenticity of the scriptures as a whole, this, this story being recorded as it does, how does it show that the Bible is true? Yeah, so, yeah, just in comparison to other ancient nations, other ancient texts, this is very, very surprising, the way that Israel's history is related. If Israel was coming up with this themselves, this is all made up, they came up with their own past, which is what many liberal scholars say today, why would they choose this? Why would they choose to say, all right, we're a nation of former slaves who were redeemed by Yahweh, even though we were 
really sinful people. No one would come up with that. They'd say, oh, by our righteousness, we were once kings, but we were unjustly oppressed. Oh, they come up with this, this glorious tale, which is not actually true. But the fact that the Bible records Israel's history as it does, in a way that nobody would have made up, it shows us that the Bible is true. Or looking at Rahab, she becomes a hero of faith. But is this the kind of hero of faith anyone would choose? No, surely we need some sort of king. We need some sort of noble person, this uh, our righteous woman who has been pure her whole life, and she will be the example of faith. That's what we would come up with. And God says, that's not how I glorify myself. And that's not, that's not consistent with real life. I mean, in real life, we're all frail and failing people, and yet God works powerfully in our lives by his grace. And we actually can take comfort in the authenticity of the Bible showing us even faith-filled persons' failings. Because we say, if God was still able to show mercy and show powerful, transforming grace in that person's life, he can do it in my own. But this is, this is part of why we see the truthfulness of the Bible. It doesn't hide the reality of the world and the reality of the people of the past. It shows us as they really were. And yet we see God working a powerful way in them. Now, one uh, last question for you to think about. If you were faced with a situation where it seemed as though lying would be the action that would best protect someone from harm, how might you respond in a way that demonstrates your faith in God? Now, we've already talked about this question. The answer basically is, don't lie. You demonstrate faith in not lying, telling the truth, or saying something else, even if it's not everything that you could say, something that's not a lie. God would never expect his people to sin to accomplish his plans. He sometimes uses it, but that isn't his will for us. That's not what he's prescribed for us. He calls on us to be like him. And though where we have failed in this, and I don't think there's any single one of us who has never told a lie, where we have failed, we are forgiven in Christ. If we have turned to Christ in faith and repentance, we are forgiven, even for every careless word we have spoken. Nevertheless, we should not sin with the idea that thinking some good will come from it, even God's forgiveness and grace. We can trust that God will accomplish his plans for us without a hint of sin. And so, though maybe, maybe circumstances may turn out to be more difficult for us because we tell the truth, we must obey God by faith because we know that he can take care of us. Any other questions about what you heard today? I'm sorry, what is your name? Uh, you've raised your hand several times. Liz, okay, good to meet you. <clears throat> what would you like to say? Oh, <laughs> well, I'm encouraged to hear that. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Leroy, okay, good to meet you, Leroy. So, Liz and Leroy. Well, if you have any other questions, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> All right. If you have any other questions or comments on today's lesson, please feel free to email me. Send out the emails uh, about the Sunday School previews each week. You can get, get me at davkaposha at gmail.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we're going to see more of how God confirms that he is with Joshua and he is with Israel because God is going to do something else very powerful and momentous. Israel will cross the Jordan River, even the raging Jordan River, on dry ground. Uh, I look forward to talking to you about that next time. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account, for this testimony of how you are the unstoppable God, even when it comes to transforming sinners. Who would have ever believed that Rahab would become a follower of Yahweh, a, a powerful agent of your will, a faith-filled person who would come to raise up uh, another generation of righteous Israelites. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that was possible? And yet it's possible through you. Salvation is impossible with man, but it is possible with you. We thank you for that, God, because when we're honest, we are all like Rahab deep down. Maybe we didn't sin the same way that she did, 
but we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We all loved ourselves. We all went the way of the world in one way or another, but you had mercy on us, just as you had mercy on her. Pray for any of those who are listening today who have not yet seen your mercy, who have not yet experienced your transforming grace, that, Lord, they would call out to you, that they would look to you in repentance and faith. They would trust in only you, Jesus Christ, to be their substitute, to be their righteousness, apart from works, apart from any ritual. God, I pray that you would glorify yourselves, glorify yourself in their salvation, just as you glorified yourself in Rahab's. I pray, Lord, you bless the people of Calvary as they continue worshiping and learning about you today. In Jesus' name, amen.